All right. And welcome to your Wednesday edition. As always, I'm your guest and host for discussions on Winwood Radio, Ian Hamilton Trottier. That is my name. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Trottier, I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Follow me on Instagram at Ian Trottier, I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. A little Seek and Destroy there for you, Metallica, today. We host an incredible author, historian, guest, diligent American citizen, G. Edward Griffin. He's the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. Look, I'm from California. I've personally been through and been to Jekyll Island. Apart from it being the site of the first transcontinental telephone call, that was Georgia, New York, to San Francisco. It was also the site to what was called the Jekyll Island Club and retreat home to some of America's wealthiest families, including the Morgans, Rockefellers, and Vanderbilts. Good for them. However, it was back in 2006, was living in San Francisco, that someone first mentioned to me the role Jekyll Island played in forming what we know as the Federal Reserve System, that is, as Americans. Prior to that, I had not heard of the island. Now, I lived in Mexico back in the early part of the turn of the century. That's 2002. And a fellow approached me and said, Ian, look, I'm going to tell you that the people in power are like in major power. You don't realize how powerful they are. In 2002, that would be the president at the time. And he says, look, you're going to think I'm nuts. But one day it'll dawn on you. And in 2006, some guy was talking to me, a different guy. This is in San Francisco. Was talking about the Federal Reserve System. Author and historian G. Edward Griffin brings to program his research and view of what took place on that small Georgia island back in 1912 that led to President Woodrow Wilson signing what we now know as the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Griffin argues that the FRS, Federal Reserve System, is a private central banking system and is not aligned with the economic values laid out in the United States Constitution. We bring on G. Edward. In about 10 minutes' time, we thank Dr. Paul Williams for joining the program last week. He's a former consultant for the FBI. And uh, Operation Gladio is still in place. His current book, The Killing of Uncle Sam, worth a read, I'd imagine. Next week, we bring on April Lejeune. She's had 30 years of journalism, TV, print, and radio experience. Her show is based out of Colorado. She's the host of, co-host, of America Matters most show. A lot has happened this week to discussions in the program. Okay. And uh, I'm going to go over a subject that is not for the faint of heart. In fact, most of the subjects here on this program are not for the faint of heart. And when, and I always go back to this because anybody listening to this, you need to understand what it is that drove me to start this by invitation. I wasn't looking to start this program. I came on this program because somebody asked me to join. But the research that I had done regarding the pesticide and the Zika virus locally in Miami 
Maybe it was growing up in San, uh, in San Francisco Bay Area and being used to questioning things, but I wasn't about to, what I learned about the Zika virus and the pesticide, I wasn't about to keep my mouth closed. And the more you listen to me and the more you listen to the incredible guests that fortunately had joined Winwood Radio, I urge you to dig deeper. So, first off, we welcome Christy Drudman. She's a graduate of the UC Berkeley. She's host of the Brown Girl Green podcast and media series. The show is dedicated to critical conversations around building an environmentally just society. Christy interviews environmental right leaders and advocates who want to share their stories and talk about why workplace and member diversity and inclusiveness is important for environmental advocacy groups who want to create a sustainable world for future generations. Okay, she happens to be Filipino-American. She is inspired to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. A featured episode of hers is Susanna Reyes. She's the current national VP of the Sierra Club. And the only, quote, woman of color member of the board of directors. She will be contributing to discussions on a weekly basis. She'll be, uh, she'll be providing a write-up for uh, regarding environmental issues, mental health and environmental activism, indigenous rights, water rights, i.e. Flint, Michigan. Hello, Miriam Hennon, Aaron Brockovich. Miriam will be joining the show here uh, again, in, uh, I believe, next month. Okay, Miriam and HoneyColony.com has, has tackled greatly um, colony collapse disorder. Folks, we use pesticides. We allow our farmers to use pesticides. We allow our large box corporations to permit the use of these pesticides, which are killing honeybees. Okay, I'm going to again mention Mila de Mur. She lost her life. We don't know why. Some of her friends say it wasn't coincidence as she presented 200,000 uh, signatures to the EPA in protest of a genetically modified uh, mosquito manufacturing plant that uh, I believe is a marathon key. Okay, so those are some of the rights that Christy will be uh, tackling, or uh, some of the topics and, uh, that Christy will, 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 will be tackling for the program. And the other development is I want to, Renee, uh, 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 I want to welcome Renee B. to the program. And uh, she will be preparing right now. She's, she's working on a five-part. She'll be presenting a five-part uh, series on this topic. And this is why I'm saying it's not for the faint of heart here. Pedophilia. And, folks, if you think there aren't connections to what's going on here, there certainly are. And I urge you, the more that you look into it, the more you realize there are connections, and the more and mo- more important it is for you as an American citizen to stand up for what's truth and just, noble and honest. Okay? They're kind of the good old basics of life. They are incredibly important and become more incredibly important as you realize, uh, as the day turns, as, as you go through, go through life. So uh, let me now get into... Just that, what Renee has prepared for us. And again, in about 10 minutes, a little less than that, six, seven, we'll be welcoming uh, G. Edward Griffin. So I will make this quick, but I thank you for tuning in to Winwood Radio. Okay, here it is, very quickly. Renee is a nurse, 15 years. She's disgusted at some of the practices in her field. We'll be getting, we'll be talking to her and get a little bit more about what she's doing uh, more and more. But she is committed to preparing 
uh, this series for us regarding pedophilia. This is her first installment. I'm going to read it for you. On the surface, child trafficking appears to be a topic of an episode of Unsolved Mystery, she says. The portrayal of that one random child disappears every so often in a completely safe, normal neighborhood for unbeknownst reasons. It's a weird neighbor or dysfunctional family that kept their perversions well hidden. The Metropolitan News might cover a couple instances of missing children in a bad neighborhood with a greater public non-plussed. The fact that it's un- under-publicized by the mainstream media does not negate the severity and frequency of child abuse that occurs in the United States. I won't even bother, she says, citing the number of missing children because, as I will show their statistics, prove unreliable. However, we can safely say hundreds of thousands of children go missing each year. And by the way, Emilia Demur is a mother of three. She left behind three children. Single mother, that is. Renee, uh, Renee is a mother. And again, she's a nurse. Every so often, she says, in the news, we see cases of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse involving children. We think to ourselves how random and horrific these situations are. But are they really so random, she asks. In the 80s, there were two separate but intertwined entities that may change what you believe about exploited and missing children. It began with an Irish priest who started a home for boys in Omaha, Nebraska, circa 1917. Father Flanagan's home for boys was officially in 1921. Official 1921. By 1936, his endeavor expanded from a large farm compound to an official village named Boys Town, Nebraska. Whoa. Hello? Okay. Sites will be published on the website, iantrotier.com. That's I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Let's continue. Anyone interested in this particular subject is invited to read the book, The Franklin Cover-Up by John DeCamp, a senator from Nebraska. And I want to again thank Chris McDaniel, senator from Mississippi, for being previous guest on my program. He represented some of the kids embroiled in this nightmare. In a nutshell, The Franklin Cover-Up involves... Lawrence King, a well-connected politician in Nebraska in the 80s, who was allegedly involved in trafficking children to high-ranking political figures, including those in the White House. And I've mentioned on this program before connections to a former major former for the Reagan administration that used to hold such parties in the White House. He now works with aspiring teen opera singers. The website was scrubbed when I tried to source his profile this week, but luckily it was archived. I had viewed it about a month ago, and unfortunately it seems they are not associated anymore or are minimalizing the connection with Mr. King. Boys Town in its entirety. Just Google it, the Wikipedia page for it. It's got its own medical and research facility. Boys Town was and is a facility for at-risk youth aging from 10 to 18 years of age, as you'll discover in further coverage of child trafficking and abuse facilities like this allocated for special needs and at-risk children and highly susceptible to nefarious activities. There have been several recent allegations of child abuse that continue to stem from Boys Town. Here's how they purport to help children, and she provides links. Again, I will publish this to iantrottier.com for your viewing. She, can, she, she concludes with this. What I'm explaining here is only a teaser, okay? So she's been do- covering this for a couple of years now. Again, she's a nurse. That's what she does. She helps people. She helps and she heals people. She's been a nurse for 15 years, okay? But she knows there's things that are going awry in her country that she loves. She continues, I'm going to show you how the tentacles 
of child trafficking and abuse invade. Brace yourself. This is what Renee writes. The military? The government? Hollywood? Art? And religion? Okay, last week, Dr. Williams gave us connections that the CIA, that is the Central Intelligence Agency that is aimed at protecting you. Okay, we're not saying that they're not. But their connection to the Vatican Bank, that would fall under the category of religion, at least the Vatican portion of that title. This is bigger than you ever thought imaginable, writes Rene. How deep into the rabbit hole you want to go is up to you. Okay, pretty well put out, okay? She, didn't, she hasn't presented a lot of uh, connections here to Boys Town and, and, and actual tr- cases of drug trafficking, but she's made a good enough link for, you, for, for, for me, for you, for anyone who's interested to start. And the fact of the matter is, that's, that's probably a source that you hadn't ever even heard about or considered. You'd heard of pedestophiles and that sort of thing. We know there's a big issue with pedophilia. We know that. It's up to you and me and everyone else to care enough to dig. Okay? So we thank Renee B. for joining the program. And we look forward to her future write-ups. And there will shortly be a small bio for her up on the website. She happens to be of African ancestry. I believe she's African-American. I can use that term. Not like it matters. We're all Americans here. We all live and breathe on the same soil. And we abide under, this is the key here, the same constitution. Let's just make sure that that constitution, a la Martin Luther King, is upheld for all of us to enjoy. So, back with you very soon with G. Edward Griffin, and we'll be talking today the Federal Reserve. And I urge you, please, please, check it out. Eye of the Beholder. appear in my life delirious antagonistic impossible put together my method instantaneously create this miracle Don't say you want me, don't say you need me 
And I'm believing what we found If we can't trust the love in us There'll be no looking back, no looking back, no If there's enough, it's not because There'll be no looking back, no looking back, no If we're falling in love, we're falling in love There'll be nothing Okay, and welcome back. Thanks for tuning in to Wednesday edition of Discussions. You're on Winwood Radio, and today, as promised, we have a very special guest with us. Uh, he's a former member, and he can tell us a little bit more about it, by the John Birch uh, Society. And if you caught the episode with Charlotte Iserbite, uh she alluded to the John Birch Society. That was a wonderful episode. Today, we welcome G. Edward Griffin to, uh, to, to the program. Edward, are you with us? be on board ah okay good good I, I pressed the wrong button there okay so you heard me um would you would you give us a little bit uh, a background about yourself uh, a little bit of history for listeners to understand exactly who you are oh okay well that's probably the least important thing but i guess uh, uh everybody wants to know a little bit about who's talking so that's fair i'm not um, anyone special i'm uh, i consider myself to be a writer I'm I'm not an expert on anything except those things that I you know detail a certain portion of my life to study and I pick those things uh, sort of very carefully. Um, I've written some books uh, that have uh, I guess made some waves. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, the the one I think most people would recognize is the uh, one called Creature from Jekyll Island: The Second Look at the Federal Reserve System. And that's, of course, a critical view of our present banking system and the origins of that and central banking in general. I wrote a book on cancer research and therapy, uh, extolling the virtues of an alternative, non-toxic uh, approach to uh, controlling cancer. And that was kind of a slap in the face of the uh, orthodox uh, medicine, which is dependent upon the pharmaceutical industry. So yes. as you gather, I, I get into controversial issues. But uh, that's what I do. I, I write on uh, important things that I think are important, and most of the time they're a little bit upstream. Good. And and uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about what it was in your life? At what point in your life was it that you said, "Oh my goodness, no, this is wrong," and I'm going to investigate it, and it kind of set things off for you? Oh, okay. Well, you know, like so many of us, I think there is no one point at which time the bell rings and the sirens go off. And that's certainly true in my case because I, I was in the corporate world as a young man working for an, a large insurance company as an underwriter and as a, um, a sales assistant who installed group insurance programs with large cor uh, corporations. And I was climbing the corporate ladder. I, everything was fine. I was making good money. I was getting promotions. I was looking ahead to being... A significant holding a significant position with the company, providing for my family, you know, and all the usual things. And uh, it was just an accident. I was visiting one of my clients one day uh, in, the, in waiting in the in the waiting room, looking at magazines to read. And I picked up a little magazine called The Free Man, and I thumbed through the pages. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever read anything uh, that uh, promoted the ideas of uh, laissez-faire or free enterprise. 
And I thought, what? Isn't this interesting? I just had gone through the university. I'd never read anything like that. So uh, I saw there was a stack of those same magazines there. Uh, I figured they were there for people to take. So I, I typed one, and I took it home. I devoured it, and I subscribed to the magazine. And that was really the first point that I recall uh, even taking an interest in anything outside of my career and my family and all of the you know entertainment world and things like that. But from that point forward, uh, you know, it was just uh, one thing after another. I was led to different books, and uh, I started attending lectures and and uh, interviewing people. And the first thing you know, I was in full gallop. I discovered I had a, a crusader gene, and I wanted to make things <laughs> right. And uh, so I quit my job with the insurance company, and my wife almost had a cow. She said, oh, what are you doing? Why are we gonna? So anyway, I launched off on my own and formed a, a little a bootstrap company called American Media, started to produce documentary films and gave a lot of speeches, and then I started to write some books. And that's really how, how it all happened. So there was a, there was kind of there was a there was a twitch maybe that uh, hey I can be or or maybe maybe what freedom appears to be isn't exactly what it is is that maybe what drew you to opening that magazine? Well, no, it wasn't that so much. It was that uh, I discovered that what I had been taught was not right. I I've been I discovered I guess in the modern vernacular you'd say I took a red pill. I discovered that I was living, in many cases, living in a world of illusion. You know, I had certain ideas about our monetary system and our government and, and uh, about the school system, about the wars and, you know, all, uh, politics, yeah. and democracy. And everywhere I looked, even healthcare. I discovered here I wasn't sort of in the healthcare business, at least on the insurance side. But when I discovered, you know, things about health care that uh, shocked me because I found out that the, it's a business. It's, and the business was not to cure people but to generate income. Uh. And that, wow, I didn't know that. I, that was, you know, I, first of all, I rejected it. So anyway, it was just a, it was, and the idea that, idea that I was not being told the whole story about things that were very important to my life. And it, it kind of ticked me off. So I, that's what happened, I guess. And, and, and Mr. Griffin, uh, what's what's the G stand for, by the way? Uh, well, I'll tell you if you don't tell anybody else. <laughs> it, stands for, <laughs> it stands for George. Okay, and do you like George or Edward or Mr. Griffin? What do you prefer? Oh, anything is fine. My friends call me Ed or Edward. My people around here call me Mr. G. It all works. So, Edward... Um, okay, so, so what led you... I want to get into Jekyll Island. Now, um... What can you what can you tell us about Jekyll Island and and, and and where did where did that dot get connected from the Freeman magazine to where you were living at the time or where you had been brought up and you're realizing wow some of these things are not necessarily meant to cure or help but they're only meant to generate income and benefit maybe a larger corporation that uh, uh, is behind the scenes of maybe the political action uh, so so what was the connection there between where you where the the, the Freeman magazine put you and then into Jekyll Island because I think and and from from my experience and what people have told me and the information that I've received you've got you've got a real interesting uh group of folks that were meeting down there at Jekyll Island and that set uh that set the course of 
now, a few weeks ago, I interviewed a former uh, New York Times columnist, uh, Stephen Kinzer, and he wrote a book uh, called uh, The True Flag. And he gets into kind of the 1890s politics of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the Spanish-American War, and opposition to that, which I didn't know existed, with Mark Twain, who was vehemently opposed to that stuff, a whole kind of anti-imperialistic movement. So you're looking at a few decades, well, a couple, well, within a decade and a half, I guess, later, where you've got you've got the the, 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 the creation of the, uh, the the Federal Reserve Act. Um, but but without you know kind of talking too much, I, uh, I want to kind of hand it back to you and say you know what would you like listeners to know, and then about the Jekyll Island issue, and uh, and then if you could take it from there. Well, yeah, that's a, it's a big tableau a tableau that we could uh, paint on. But I guess the most direct path is to answer your question of how I got into the. Jekyll Island story or the Federal Reserve story. Um, by this time, I uh, was running a small company, and I considered it was my uh, mission to um, save the world. Of course, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's something me, you know, bite-sized like that. <laughs> and uh, and I was looking around for okay, how can I best use my training and my uh, my aptitudes uh, to do this? I was giving a lot of speeches in those days. Okay. But it got to be frustrating because I do a, a lot of traveling and and I go and speak before a group. Maybe there'd be fifty or sixty people or one hundred and twenty people, and I'd pour my heart out and I'd go travel the next night, go someplace else, and speak to another eighty people or wow. sixty people. And I said, "Oh my gosh, this world is too big. I'll never. There's no <laughs> way I can make a difference doing this." So I decided I I wanted to really put all of these ideas into film so that copies of the film could be circulating, and that way I could reach thousands, if not millions of people eventually. So that was a strategy that put me into the filmmaking side of it. And so I was looking around, well, what would be a good film to make? What, what is really important to people that uh, I could make a difference with? And I got the idea that inflation was a very important topic because even then, without not without knowing much about the cause of inflation, I knew that people's purchasing power was being eroded. They work all their life and they save all this money. And uh, it was a lot of, it, it bought a lot of things when they saved it and sacrificed by not spending it so they could save it. But then by the time they got around to spending it in their retirement, it wasn't worth very much. I said, That's not fair. Somebody is stealing that money from us and who is it? So I got curious about the cause of inflation. So I started to research that, and of course, that leads directly to the engine of inflation, which is the, the central banks, as they call them. In our country, it's called the Federal Reserve System, because that is the, okay, what is the Federal Reserve? I discovered that it wasn't a government agency. And there was one of those red pills. I thought, my gosh, I thought the Federal Reserve was a government agency. Uh, but it turns out that it isn't. I found out that it was a, it's a group of banks. In fact, it was a banking cartel. Just this, you know, the same as an oil cartel or a peanut cartel or a banana cartel. It was a banking cartel, and I thought this isn't this isn't what I thought it was. So I started to read about it, and I discovered that it was created at a secret meeting on Jekyll Island and not created in Washington D.C. And I thought this is really interesting because I knew that when people do things in secret, it's usually something to hide. I wonder, what is it these guys were trying to hide when they created the Federal Reserve? So that's the kind of the, the steps I took 
And uh, first thing you know, I was uh, found myself immersed in one of the most fascinating and, in a way, horrifying stories you could possibly imagine. It was fascinating because I really was uh, discovering the way the world really works, as opposed to the illusions that we were all living under. Uh, and uh, it was, so that was fascinating, but it was horrifying because I realized that, my gosh, these people who create money out of nothing, and they can do this legally because they got this legislation passed, they're creating money out of nothing, and they can collect interest on loans of money that was created out of nothing. This is like like the golden goose that lays the golden egg, you know? And, and then I ran across that quotation attributed to... Uh, Lord Rothschild a couple of centuries ago in which he said that, you know, I care not who makes the laws if you allow me to make the money, and then I'll buy who makes the laws, and I will run the world. So I thought, my gosh, I'm onto something really big here. That's how I sort of stumbled into the topic of the Federal Reserve, and then I really got serious, and, and I tried to become as scholarly as I could because I knew what I was discovering, and I had to explain to people, nobody wanted to believe it. Nobody would believe it. In fact, I probably wouldn't have believed it. Uh, in, the, in fact, I didn't believe it when I first ran across it. So I knew I had to be very defensive in presenting this story, and by that I mean I knew I had to prove it. I had to base my story upon original documents that came from the people themselves who were actually involved in the creation of the Federal Reserve. But their own books, their own private papers, uh, the minutes of their meetings, and so forth. So I had to be very, very defensive so that I did not take any information from people who were critical of the Federal Reserve, only from those who praised it or those who built it. So that's how I got into it, and it turned out to be about a seven-year project. <laughs> I had never undertaken anything quite that serious before, but it turned out to be probably well worth my time. And um, there it is. The story is in The Creature from Jekyll Island. It's about a, an organization that's a private banking cartel that was created in secret on Jekyll Island back in 1910 through 19... Well, the meeting was held in 1910, and the cartel agreement that they drafted there was finally passed into law as the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. And from that day forward, all of us are living <clears throat> under under uh, penalty of uh, punishment. We have to live under the terms of that cartel agreement because it's law now. And that's the reason we think that the Federal Reserve is government, because if we don't obey the rules, we go to prison. And we, we think, well, only government can put you in prison uh, well, that's not true in this case because the cartel got the government to pass a law, uh, which they wrote, and it's really a cartel agreement. So this is something that most people wouldn't believe if you did, if you couldn't prove it in the words of the people themselves who uh, who did the deed. And that's how I got into it, and what I accomplished or tried to accomplish. Uh, and the book was published what oh, nineteen ninety. I guess it was quite a while ago. So, do you do you provide? There's a couple of things. Who is it? Who's behind the Federal Reserve? Uh, and uh, do, were you able to find the the documentation that that proved that the people 
that you perhaps present as being members of the Federal Reserve are me- members of the Federal Reserve. Oh well, sure. Yeah, it's 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 not a, it's not hard to find. It's a matter of public record, and uh, it's just that it's not taught in schools and it's not mentioned in the major media. And so, you know, if people don't hear about it, they don't think it exists. But it's it's in any well-stocked library. You can find this information. I spent a lot of time in those days in the Los Angeles Public Library looking at uh, microfilm, you know, uh, 16 or 35 millimeter film uh, of copies of all the old newspapers going back to the turn of the last century. I looked at thousands and thousands of pages of the New York Times over that period of 1900, 1910, 1913, and so forth. And it's all there. It's all there in the public record. I spent some time on Jekyll Island itself. It's um, it's no longer a private island like it was in those days. Today, it's a resort island, and um, they uh, they this thing this thing called the Federal Reserve was created at a uh, private meeting in the Jekyll Island Clubhouse, which is still there. In those days, it was pri- in those days it was privately owned by a small group of billionaires from New York, people like J.P. Morgan and William Rockefeller, people like that. That's where they went to spend their cold winter months from New York, they went down to Georgia, and uh, so they went to this clubhouse, and uh, they spent a week there sitting around a table, and they drafted the Federal Reserve Act. So I went to Jekyll Island to see what I could learn, and sure enough, they they have a, uh, a depository of documents there. They have a little uh, library and, and um, a curator there, and uh, the ladies were there, and they were very happy to open up their files to me, and I could see the memoirs and the papers and the photographs of these people. Uh, so it's all there. It's, uh, it just means you have to dig it out. It's not in public view, but it is part of the public record. So then just you mentioned who were, I can tell you who these people were. There were six of them. Okay. Uh, Nelson Aldridge, uh, he was a senator at that time. Uh, he was the chairman of the National Advisory, or rather the National Monetary Commission, uh, he was the one that was drafting. He was in charge of proposing the legislation that became the Federal Reserve Act. And uh, so um, he was the head of this group. In fact, he was the one that called the meeting, and everybody gathered uh, in the evening at the railroad station in New Jersey in November of two, uh, 1910 to board his private railroad car. He was a very wealthy guy. He was in banking and private life and in business. Uh, so he had a private railroad car, so he invited the other uh, five to join him. Uh, so he was the the Republican whip in the Senate at that time. Uh, he was a business associate of J.P. Morgan. He became the father-in-law of uh, John D. Rockefeller, Jr. So you can see what circles he traveled in. Another person on board that train was Abraham Piat. Andrew, who was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury at that time, but actually he was from a banking family, and that was the reason he was there, is because of his banking connections. And it was because of his banking connections that he was appointed as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Um, Many people have have not noticed that Almost all of the secretaries of the treasury and assistant secretaries uh, come from the banking community. So even though they're holding government positions, they're really bankers. And so they've kind of captured the government. And they, they, they sign papers as you know, secretary of the treasury, but they really are bankers. And another man on board was Frank Vanderlip. He was president of the National City Bank of New York was the most powerful of all the banks at that time, uh, representing William Rockefeller, that was their financial interests. 
and the international investment banking house of Kuhn Loeb and Company, which was an international banking outfit. Uh, Henry P. Davison was on board that train. He was the senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Benjamin Strong was on board. He was the head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. And, of course, Paul Warburg, uh, probably the person who was most technically qualified of the whole group. He was a full partner in Kuhn Loeb and Company. He was a, a representative of the Rothschild Banking Dynasty in England and France. And all this time, he remained a close re, uh, liaison with his brother, Max Warburg, uh, who was head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Those were the six people that traveled on that private railroad car for two nights and a day up to Brunswick, Georgia, and then got on a little ferry boat, went across the inland straits to Jekyll Island, and then were taken to the Jekyll Island clubhouse. And as I said, they sat around that little table there uh, and created the Federal Reserve System in conditions of great secrecy, by the way. Uh, I found that, you know, for example, they even used code names when they traveled. They didn't want to be seen. They were told to address each other by last names, and some of them even adopted code names. So that, and they and they wrote about this later. Uh, you can read their books. They say that, well, we did that because um, we didn't want the servants to know who all of us were. Because if the servants talked, the word would get out, you know, things like that. All the, uh, They were told to avoid newspaper uh, reporters as they uh, came to the meeting. One of the guys carried uh, a shotgun case with a shotgun in it, and he never fired a gun in his life. He, he borrowed the gun just in case a newspaper reporter were to ask him where he was going. He was prepared to say he was going on a duck hunting trip, and this sort of thing. All of this is well-documented. In the biographies of these men, or in their own private papers, this is not not something that is made up by their critics. In later years, they boasted about this. At the time, they denied it. At the time, whenever anybody was asked in this group if there was such a meeting, because there was buzz about it, they said, oh, no, that's just nonsense. No, it never happened. It was like today, they would say, oh, that's some kind of a conspiracy theory. You know, they've tried to poo-poo it. But later on, after the Federal Reserve became sort of revered as a great American institution, then they began to say, oh, yes, yes, we, we did go to this meeting, but we, we had to do it in private because we didn't want anybody to know that we were creating a banking bill. <laughs> that was very funny because Vanderlip himself, who one of the participants, wrote an article that appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, and he said, yeah, of course we had to be secret about it, because if the public knew that a banking reform bill was being written by us, the bankers, <laughs> why it would never float. So we had to be secret about it. And on and on and on, you get the idea. All of this information is and has been in the public record for those who took or wanted to take the time to dig it out. Now, how does Edward? How does this uh, contrast to the system that Alexander Hamilton wanted in place? And if you know that history, uh, the uh, opposition that he was receiving, seemingly from Thomas Jefferson. Well, yeah, that was an interesting debate. the The roots of this whole conflict do go back. Uh, as you just said, between Jefferson and Hamilton. Hamilton was more of a, a, a closely aligned with the banking interests. Uh, he was, he, in fact, he favored a central bank. Uh, Hamilton favored a, a strong federal union. 
Uh, Jefferson was fearful of the banks and wrote about it. said, you know, if we ever give these banking institutions full power over our money system, we will wind up being slaves to them somewhere down the line. In fact, his words were very uh, colorfully. I think he said, uh, our children and grandchildren will wind up uh, as servants and bondage uh, to the system that their forefathers created. And so Jefferson was very opposed to giving banks this kind of power, but Hamilton had no fear of the banks. In fact, I, he was really closely involved in b banking investments. So, the yeah, the debate started even before the, the country was formed. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, and, 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 and my guess is that the British Empire may have hands in that via the Akun Loeb. Is that is that a possibility, in your view? Well, the British Empire, yes. Yeah, that see that of course the 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 British uh, the king uh, King George of course had his own uh, financial institutions, and we were dealing with the Bank of England, which was the forerunner of the central banks of the world of today. The Federal Reserve System actually was modeled after the Bank of England. Uh -huh. That was one of the things that I discovered, and uh, so the Bank of England really is a private bank. Um, but it, it's so merged with the government rules and regulations that everybody thinks of it as uh, a government. But it's not. It's a, just like in the United States, it's uh, privately owned and controlled. In fact, what you come out with the other side of this is a shocking discovery. Mm -hmm. Talk about a red pill. And that is, we think that the government controls the Federal Reserve System, right? Right, right. I mean, after all, the president, uh, president appoints the chairman of the board. Right. Uh, what? But the fact of the matter is, the president doesn't even know these people. I don't think there's ever been a president that I'm aware of who appointed a chairman of the board of directors of the Federal Reserve that he knew. It didn't. His name did not come out of his private address book. The names come out of a list of appointments that are given to the president. Mm -hmm. The president has to make deals in order to get campaign support and financial support. And the way that normally works is that somebody who is very wealthy, like banks uh, or banking institutions, will say, well, Mr. Candidate, you know, we would support you. We, we may disagree with some of the things that you say, but we like what you do, and we will support you. And, you know, we have power, so we can almost assure that you'll be elected. Well, are you interested? And, of course, the candidate says, well, yes, I'm very interested. What do you want in return? Well, we don't want very much. All we want is that if you or when you are elected, we would like you to select your appointments to the various cabinet positions, including including appointments to the Federal Reserve System and the Supreme Court, and a few things like that, from the list that we give to you. That's how that comes about. And when once you realize how these things really work, as opposed to the the illusion uh -huh. that somehow, you know, that somehow Congress is in charge. Uh, then you realize that, no, the government does not control the banks, but the banks control the government. Right. Right. And um, let me throw this out there for you, because I've heard this before, and um, it, I was in San Francisco in 2006, and this fellow, this is the first time that somebody had talked to me about uh, uh, the Federal Reserve, and I believe he had mentioned Jekyll Island, um, and he actually made a connection to, uh, to the Abraham, the administration of Abraham Lincoln 
and the John F. Kennedy administration. In, 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 in your studies and in your research, are you able to make any connection between those two former presidents and the banking system that runs this government? Well, yes, I think there are some parallels, and there are some differences that most people... It's easy to see the parallels, but it's uh, not so easy to see the differences. For example, in both administrations, of course, there was a very strong influence, political influence, coming from the banking institutions. During the uh, American Civil War, um, the European banks were spending a lot of money uh, to do to infiltrate... Uh, the political system of this country. And they were really, uh, the banks of Europe wanted to see the United States split. Uh-huh. They wanted to see uh, a divided America because they were concerned already that America was getting too strong. And uh, they, didn't like the, they didn't like the idea of big, strong, independent countries. They liked a lot of little warring countries so they can the bankers can finance each of them in their wars and keep them constantly fighting each other so that, and by the way, during the wars they have to borrow a lot of money, so it's very profitable for the banks, and wars are really institutions uh, or uh, events that are encouraged by banking institutions for that reason. And so the banks in Europe did not want to see a strong U.S., so the idea of a split United States was very much to their liking, and they were, they were spending money uh, to bring that about. Um, they were a lot of uh, European money went to finance the South. Uh, they offered money to the North too, but uh, Lincoln declined it. Um, whether that was, you know, a good thing or a bad thing is can be argued because in declining it, uh, Lincoln created the greenbacks, which were completely unconstitutional because the Constitution says uh, money could not be uh, federal money, government money could not be issued on the basis of debt. Or, or you know IOUs had to be coin. So uh, by rejecting loans from the European banks, that allowed uh, Lincoln to be independent of those banking influences, which is good. But by the same token, it created a fiat money in the United States, which was bad. It was unconstitutional, but nobody cared because it was a war going on. And who cares about a constitution when you're fighting a war? That's generally how, by the way, that's one of the reasons we have so many wars is so that nobody cares too much about such things as constitutions. <laughs> right, right. And so, that way. so Edward, so, speak, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and so, yeah, there was banking influence in both cases. But now that usually leads some people to conclude that, well, since Lincoln was assassinated uh, by um, uh, yeah, John Wilkes Booth, who I guess can be traced to probably was an agent of, the, of uh, being paid in some way, an agent of the, of the uh, uh, foreign banks, that therefore when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, he must have been uh, assassinated by the banks, too. I, it's an intriguing thought. It's an right. intriguing, you know, but I have not been able to find any real evidence to support that. Now, that gets me into trouble with a lot of people because they say, <laughs> sure. well, don't you know anything about that executive uh, order? And uh, yeah, I know all about it. And uh, if you want to read my explanation as to why I don't think it's a valid argument, you'll find that in my book. And, uh, but if you don't want to even buy the book, I'm not trying to sell a book. You'll find it on the internet, on um, the Freedom Force website. Also, yeah, just look it up. 
John F. Kennedy assassination, put my name Griffin after it, and you'll you'll come to my yeah. reason for why I don't think that's what happened. Now, uh, now, what about? Uh, let's get back to the, the 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 you know it's 2018. We've got a Federal Reserve system. I mean, there's no complaints, right? I mean, we've got a strong country, but then there are complaints because you start looking at some of these different manipulations as far as uh, perhaps ingredients in vaccines or uh, pesticides or insecticides or genetically modified uh, foods. Or all right, so there's so there's so there's areas to kind of dig in, and then we kind of tra- I you know you tra- follow a trail that leads back to. Uh, to profit and and money and big corporations and banking. But the bottom line here, with the Federal Reserve anyway, if we isolate the Federal Reserve, you're not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, but from what you've studied, does it sound like that's constitutional? Well, no, absolutely not. (laughs) It's I mean, even a grade school child, I think, certainly a high school kid, can see that it's unconstitutional when you read the Constitution, which deals that section, which deals with the power of the federal government to issue money. It just says money shall not be a, a bill of credit. It shall be a coin. That's it. it it's, it's, it's so clear. And then if there's any doubt, all you have to do is go back and read the debates during the Constitutional Convention in which this issue was discussed, and it was just laid out in such clear uh-huh. terms. You see, we had just gone, the colonies had just gone through a terrible, devastating inflationary period because all of the colonies and the Continental Congress both were printing money on printing presses to pay for the Revolutionary War. That was how they were funding the war. They, they couldn't collect taxes, so they were just printing money and pushing it into circulation. And it was a devastating inflationary event. Uh, in those continental dollars that, when they were first issued, were, con- were uh, by law, they were uh, equal to the value of one ounce of gold. Huh. But by, by uh, two years later, uh, it took a thousand of them a thousand of them to buy a pair of shoes. So, you know, they have been reduced to nothing. And that's what always happens to fiat money with nothing to back it up. So uh, having lived through that, when it came to drafting the American Constitution, those guys in, in Philadelphia were very clear. They said, in this new nation, the federal government shall not issue money based on bills of credit, which means IOUs, which means fiat money. In other words, they said it must be coin. And in those days, coin meant gold or silver coins. And it's clear. It's English. There are no exceptions. Just read it. <laughs> and uh, Now, how do they get by with it? It's because nobody wants to challenge it. No politicians, no judges have the courage to stand up for what is obviously true. They don't want to be responsible for, um, well, it would, it would just shake everything loose, wouldn't it? If they said, hey, the Federal Reserve notes are not constitutional, we got to issue something else, why, the whole banking system would collapse. Uh, people would probably panic. There'd be revolution in the streets because they don't know what's going on. They don't know what money should be or shouldn't be. It's just that, oh, my goodness, what idiot, what idiot proposed that we enforce the Constitution? <laughs> sure, sure, and it sounds like it's so, not—it's not being uh, taught, taught in schools. So no, it's not taught in school. No, I didn't know any of this 
And of course, that's not surprising. I came through the public school system like so many of us have. But I went through university and I took a course in economics. I remember reading about money a little bit. None of this was ever presented to me. No. Uh-huh. Now, do you have any comments regarding George Bush, the the the, the senior in the eighties? And you can see it on the back of that dollar, that very bill or uh, note, because it's not really. A, I don't know what it is. It's a, I guess it's a note. Uh, um, you see it on the very back of that. You see the Norvis Ordon Seclorum. It's a it's a Latin phrase. I have mispronounced it. Forgive me. But it translates in English to New World Order. It sounds like. Uh, George Bush Sr. had spoken about that. Do you have any comments regarding what that is and what the correlation between that is with the uh, the currency that we know as a U.S. dollar bill? Well, you get into some pretty um, uh, esoteric stuff there, a lot of theory and a lot of mystery. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Great Seal goes back to the very founding of our country. It didn't, didn't originate with uh, George Bush, of course. And uh, uh, it it appears, I'm, I'm convinced at least, that there was a Masonic influence in the design of, of the Great Seal of the United States. The um, pyramid and the all-seeing eye and the Novus Ordem, you know, the, uh, the New Order and so forth. Um, all of that is pretty clearly Masonic in origin. And I suspect that uh, the people back in the Revolutionary Period the ones that were making those decisions uh, were deliberately putting Masonic symbols in there, which in their minds, I believe, were they considered them to be positive symbols. Uh, I am not a, I'm not a, a scholar on uh, secret societies, but I did discover something that surprised me, that there were the, quite a few um, Masonic lodges, well, Masons involved in the founding of our country. George Washington was a Mason. There's no, no debate about that. Even have a a painting of him and his Masonic apron and so forth. And he wrote letters about the Masonic Lodge. Those have been preserved. Um, and, uh, but it's clear to me, at least, that in, in the early days of the Masonic Lodges, uh, a lot of people um, joined because they really felt it was time to uh, get rid of the monarchies. Uh-huh. They, felt, they, they really felt that this was a movement toward... Um, uh, preserving liberty or expanding liberty and freedom for the common man. And so there was a lot of uh, opposition to monarchies, and so it was almost necessary to go into a secret society if you were going to oppose the monarch, because otherwise the monarch's men would come around and that would be the end of you. And it got interesting because somewhere along that line, the uh, the Masonic lodges in particular were able to recruit some of the sons and princes of the monarchs. <laughs> and that seemed like it was counterproductive, that here, you know, young men that uh, were going to inherit a great power because they were, you know, bloodlined to the throne, and yet they became imbued with this idea of democracy and diffusion of power among the people. And so they joined these lodges. So I think there was a lot of that in those days where people were joining these lodges of the Masonic Order because they really had in mind uh, bringing uh, the, the common man into an area of more freedom and to, uh, well, to topple the monarchies and replace sure. them with, uh, 
Republican forms of government or democracies or something like like that. Now, what happened afterwards is another story. I think it sort of evolved in a different direction. And in fact, that's one of the things that George Washington wrote about in some of his letters when he was a grand master of a Masonic lodge. He was warning his fellow Masons to beware of that influence within the Masonic order that would be working secretly within their own ranks to uh, to bring about world dominance and to bring about just the opposite of what the rest of them had in mind. So that I, I realized when I read that and others like that, that there was a conflict going on within the Masonic orders. But now we get back to the question of the dollar bill. There's no question that there were a lot of Masons involved in the early days uh, of the American uh, Revolution. In fact, the, the Tea Party uh, was uh, those guys that dressed up as Indians and dumped all the tea into the Boston Arbor. Those were all Masons. They belonged to the local Masonic Lodge. So these were guys that were true patriots. They were, they were fighting against the king and the high taxes and all that sort of thing. So with that in mind, it's not surprising to realize that the dollar or the symbol, the, uh, the, symbol, uh, the great symbol for the U.S. had Masonic symbols in it. Later on, that showed up on the back of the dollar. So now I think I probably have described it not exactly in the right sequence, but I think pretty close to it. That's probably why it's on the dollar. Um, makes sense. Anyway. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and yeah. certainly those, those cornerstones that, um, that I constantly talk about, and that is uh, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of press, uh, we're both exercising that right now, and uh, freedom of freedom of religion. You know, those are those are cornerstones that are built in to the Constitution that we all live. Uh, we hope that we live. Now, Paul Craig Roberts uh, objected to that, but we hope that we're living by um, uh, in a free and, and, and uh, just society that we know today. And and I think you've brought up a very key point point in that these banks make profit in war. Um, and uh, th- th- so they're, 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 unfortunately, they're, they're continuously uh, perhaps um, promoting a conflict, if that will, if, 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 that, if that makes sense. Um, and so what we need to do, certainly, in the United States today, and I'd like you to kind of close out with your thoughts on, on what we can do as American citizens that love our country, and we love that Constitution, and we love the fact that it's a melting pot for Everyone, just like the Statue of Liberty, right? You bring me your huddled masses, your 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 downtrodden, your poor, and so that's what we that's what we love about this wonderful country. Now it's brought financial success, but as we peel the layers down, we're like, wait a second, the Federal Reserve isn't exactly what it seems to be, and certainly you've dedicated many years to that. So to understanding that and talking about that, so what is it in your opinion? Uh, what is it that we can do to move forward? To uh, to remain united certainly, but to to help create a better system. If there's fault in this system, because it sounds like there's certainly it has its 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 weaknesses. Um, how do we how do we build a stronger system or reshape the existing system that uh, for certainly are for our future generations? Well, that's a really good question, and I've given a lot of thought to that, and uh, probably that's where. That's where we should go with this whole thing. You can talk about problems all day long, but if you don't have a solution, why bother, you know? So, um, yeah, I think that the, the answer to your question is simple. 
it's not easy, but it's simple. And it basically, it's a two-step process. One is we have to really face reality. We, we cannot solve a problem if we have a false idea of what the problem is. If, if we don't know the way the system really works, then uh, all of the problems of the system will look like they're caused by something other than what they really are. And chances are we'll wind up uh, falling for proposed solutions, which are just the opposite of what they should be. I'll give you one example. Um, the Federal Reserve, we're talking about that. Uh, we've got people out there, you know, that they uh, they want to occupy Wall Street. They're, they're really upset with Wall Street, uh, as, as they should be. Okay, yeah. so they they go out there and they're demonstrating and they're uh, making a lot of racket and uh, they get a lot of news coverage. Occupy Wall Street, stop these big bad capitalists. They think they think they're capitalists. By the way, Wall Street is not capitalistic. It was a couple of decades ago, but now it's socialistic. It's all this is not crony capitalism that we're seeing. This is crony socialism. Wall Street is in bed with the government. Wall Street has a monopoly over the monetary system, which I've just been describing. The Federal Reserve is not private industry. It's not private capitalism. It's it's a monopoly that's been given monopolistic powers by law, by Congress. This is a partnership between some, some very uh, shrewd business people and shrewd politicians. This is not capitalism. This is not free enterprise. This is not laissez-faire. This is socialism. This is collectivism. This is big government. Okay, so the people go on the streets and say, oh, we're upset with Wall Street. Look at all the bad things they do. What we need is more power to the government. We need more regulations, they say. <laughs> well, the reason that we've got the problem right now is because Wall Street is totally regulated, and the people who are writing the regulations are the banks, you see. <laughs> so if, if you don't understand the way the world really works, you're going to call for solutions which are just the opposite of what they should be. So the first step in answering your question is to get a handle on what is reality versus illusion. And then the second thing is to recapture control of the system from the inside so we can change it. Just writing letters to your congressman is not going to do it because the congressmen are already in the pockets of, of these uh, very wealthy people, these, uh, these conglomerates, these uh, cartels and so forth. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to solve the problem. So how, well, how do you translate that into practical matters? That, uh, what, what can the average person do? is what I hear a lot. And the answer is maybe a little startling. The average person can do nothing. So what we need is stop being average, everybody. Stop being average. Stop just believing everything you hear on the fake news. Just question. Question. Do a little work on your own. Uh, be responsible for your own life. Don't turn to, to government for everything, for the answers. You know, my motto is question authority because sometimes, not sometimes, almost all the time, authority tends to be corrupt because that's where the power is. That's where the money is. Power and money corrupt people. So authorities, the more power and money they have at their disposal, the more corrupt they tend to be. So stop, stop, being, stop being ordinary 
and take an interest and take an interest in uh, in recapturing control of the system. So that's the first step. And and how do we do that? Well, that's the reason, Anne, that we're putting on something called the Red Pill Expo coming up in June. For people that want to take that first step and find out what is the reality of, of our daily lives. What is the reality in politics? What is the reality in health care? What is the reality in money and banking? What is the reality in wars? You know, all of these things. Um, we had uh, a, a great Red Pill Expo last year uh, in Bozeman, Montana. It was a slam-dunk success. We're having another one in June of this year in Spokane, Washington. And I'll be speaking there, but we got great a great speaker lineup. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki will be there. Everybody recognizes him cool. as uh, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He'll be talking about the reality of, of wealth and money and things like that. And, uh, well, anyway, I could go on and on, but I, I urge anybody that wants to become part of the solution and not just talk about the problem to check out that, the Red Pill Expo. And uh, so the place to do that is Red Pill Expo. Dot net, redpillexpo.net, and you can see all the speakers we're going to have. And then that leads to the next step, which is the Red Pill University, which is what we do about it. We're creating campuses in all of the counties across the United States, or at least that's our goal. We need boots on the ground. We need people, people to stand up at the local level and build a, a, a movement from the bottom up. You can't, you can't build a movement by just electing a president. You know, one man. Uh, most people think, ah, we can just get our president elected and into the White House. We win. And that's, of course, absurd. What we're up against is a movement of huge proportions with many thousands of participants on, on the collectivist side, uh, both right and left. I mean, we're being played for suckers by a, a, uh, a manpower organization with tens of thousands of people participating. And we're helpless against that unless we can match them uh, on the field w- with our own organization. So that all starts at redpillexpo.net. Wonderful. Edward, thank you very much for coming on the program and joining uh, Winwood Radio. I uh, look forward to future engagements with you. And do you have any parting words for listeners well i guess those were my parting words <laughs> is that we have to we have to uh discern reality from illusion and then we have to get up off of our couches and get out to where the people are we can't expect them to come to us we have to go into the organizations the political parties the labor unions the church organizations where the people are and we have to offer leadership and provide information we have to replace the uh, the cadre of collectivists that are now running the show. We can't just sit back and say, "My goodness, look what's happening." So that's my parting words. Let's. Uh, I know, and that's not for everybody, but the truth is, all we need is about one percent of the population. All throughout history, history has always been made not by the masses, but by one percent of the population. Even the American Revolution. Think about it. Less than 1% of the population led the American Revolution and fought the revolution. It was led by a few intellectuals who were representing the legislatures of the various colonies. They came together, great minds, maybe 20 men all together were the spearhead of the whole revolution. 
and then some brave people got organized. Then the militias came into it. They were trained, and they knew they were fighting for a good cause, but they didn't know for sure what it was. Once you have that cadre of 1%, then the others will follow. Together we march forward. Uh, G. Edward Griffin, ladies and gentlemen. Edward, thank you very much. All right, thank you for inviting me. Goodbye. Folks, I thank you for listening and patroning Winwood Radio. We continue to put on... I look, I'm I'm beyond proper words to express gratitude, express thanks. I never expected I would be doing this. And this program has been extremely fortunate to receive the caliber of people that it receives. I will be right back with closing thoughts of my own. Ladies and gentlemen, redpillexpo.net. Check it out. I'll be back in a moment. And you have tuned in to Discussions. I am your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. You've tuned into your weekly edition of Discussions. Listen to these words. 
with their exception. Now, if it's J- uh, James Hetfield, I'm not sure who exactly authored those lyrics. But, you know, I was asked by a friend the other day, you know, what do you think of this song and that song? Uh, I was born in the 70s, so I grew up on my skateboard in California listening to Metallica. And the words that they were singing and taking to their listeners' eardrums, it couldn't resonate and ring louder today. Free, dumb with their exception. Freedom with their exception. It was just like G. Edward Griffin right just mentioned. Is reality really what you think it is? The Federal Reserve isn't even federal. So right there, that should show you. Oh, okay, wait a second. Federal Reserve is not federal. That's not a reality that I think is a reality. Jekyll Island, 1913 Federal Reserve Act. Question authority. Edward said it right there. Question authority. Do you care? Do you even care? Okay, fine. I wasn't going to mention it, but I'm going to mention it. I'm going to close out with this. I was irate yesterday because I was parked and a fellow walked behind my car and proceeded to, this is public. It's on private property, but it's in, it's in public. And he proceeded to relieve himself. I blew on my horn. I screamed at him. What? Seriously? I mean, seriously? There's a cafe two blocks away, pal. You seriously cannot go. I don't care was his response. I'm scratching my head right now. I'm going to close it out with these words. And it's the words that I use with every show. I thank you for listening. I'll be back here next week. Oh, and let me mention uh, next week, April or June. Okay. But following April, we will be hosting Tom Inglehart. He's a graduate of Yale University where he earned an undergraduate degree. He went on to study at Harvard University where he earned a master's degree in East Asian studies. He is the head of a think tank called Tom Dispatch, TomDispatch.com. Former guest on this program is also a member of that think tank. He wrote his Ph.D. thesis as a Ph.D. student at Yale. Mr. Alfred McCoy. So, we welcome in a couple weeks Tom Englehart. I thank you for joining, tuning in to Winwood Radio, joining discussions. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Yes, Hamilton, like Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton, it's Hamilton from Scotland. Yes, my grandfather. Sidetrack. And follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. Tell your friends about me. Want to support what I'm doing and support what we're all doing here? Donate to the program. So donate button on iantrachia.com and go to redpillexpo.net. Support G. Edward Griffin. Support America. Um, support your family, whatever. Um, and, uh, and that's it. My closing words for you folks. 
be awesome.